terra nullius is is the the founding myth of colonial Australia. The the self serving presumption that this was an empty continent, just there for the taking. And it wasn't anything of the sort, of course. It was was a home to some 300,000 people in 1788. The first peoples of this place with, with complex social structures and relationships, with, with regional trading relationships, a relationship with Australian ecology that was, was incomprehensible to Europeans. Possibly still is. Uh, Indigenous Australians also created a, a complex built environment first peoples of this place were no strangers to what we call architecture. And this relationship, it's, it's detailed sumptuously, authoritatively, and to, to colonial eyes, I think surprisingly, in Ganya, Gundi and Worley, The Aboriginal Architecture of Australia, and it's an extraordinary book the country's most definitive history of Indigenous architecture. There is now an updated, revised edition. Uh, its author is Professor Paul Memmott. He's uh, an anthropologist, an architect and, and director of the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre at the University of Queensland. Paul, welcome. Good afternoon. That idea, terra nullius, what, what strikes you when you hear those words? empty land. <laughs> so <laughs> what they couldn't see was cognitive behaviour and spatial behaviour. And if you look at that, then you find that there was a whole land tenure system throughout the continent. There was a belief in, in sacred sites created all over the continent in which there were recurring energies. So at the moment, I'm sitting in Kurilpa, place of the rat, just up to the east of me a bit is Gumbuguiba, place of the crayfish. So I've got sacred sites around me and that belong to the Yagara people and I pay acknowledgement to that. As well as that, there was a system of regularly used campsites across the continent. Um, within the land tenure system, each clan had their own country that they had to look after. Within that country, they, would, they had a network of campsites which were used at different seasonal times. So... There was quite a complex system. Um, sometimes if the campsite shelters weren't erected, then they weren't necessarily visible to the outsider mm. who um, might not understand the presence of this strongly developed culture over many millennia, of course. And those structures, I mean, they, they vary according to use and environment and climate, but, but, but are things of, of extraordinary complexity. Yeah, well... People preferred to live outdoors if the weather was fine, but if there was inclement weather, they would erect various types of structures. Cold winds often just resulted in windbreaks and fires, but if you have uh, really cold weather, persistently rainy weather or snowy weather, then that's when more sophisticated shelters got constructed. So the places I've identified where that was most visible were on the west coast of Tasmania, the western part of Victoria where the Gunditjmara were, the southwest of Western Australia, areas where these cold winds came howling across the Southern Ocean. Mm. Also the, uh, the rainforests in North Queensland where, <laughs> in the way, the old climate that we used to have back a few decades, um, yes. we could get very long um, wet seasons and so people had to have these villages, which we might call semi-sedentary villages, 
somewhere located near good food supplies and water supplies. And, of course, the, the materials that were used to construct them varied in the different habitats, so there were different technologies employed. What do you think would, would surprise uh, non-Indigenous Australians most about that? What do you, what do you call that classical period of, of pre-colonial Indigenous architecture and structure? What, what would surprise people about those buildings, those extraordinary and sometimes very elaborate shelters? Well, their eye might catch on particular shelters, um, but if you read the book from cover to cover, you'd be struck by the integration of the architecture, the camps, the um, mobility patterns, um, the seasonal gathering of resources, the relationship with the sacred sites, the identities that people have that are expressed through ceremony. And that's another point, that ceremonial architecture was probably the most complex and profound. But again, it was something that was usually destroyed at the end of the ceremonies. So there wasn't very often visible to the outsiders, such as first early settlers coming. Can you, can you perhaps give us an example of something there? I mean, describe a structure of that type. Well, where I worked in, worked in Central Australia, for example, there would have been ground paintings. So typically the ground paintings were maps of country. And then on those paintings, there might be erected particular sculptures representing ancestral beings and then the ceremonies would involve people of the right totemic identity who identify with that dreaming to put on their paint up and, and apparel and that, that could be quite complex with decorated hats and so forth and they reenacted the adventures of the ancestral beings in the landscape so there was like a reenactment of of the sacred histories that have been passed down, mm. accompanied to singing, of course, and music. Yeah, it was complex integration of, of um, worship and celebration, which is why, like, you know, Aboriginal people had religion. It's such an extraordinary complexity that was disturbed in, in 1788, and I've, you have to hope not irreparably. Yeah, well, of course, it's um, ver various parts of the continent went under different types of cultural change and they went under cultural change for different depths of time. So, um, And there was a diversity of Aboriginal cultures from the start. There were many you know, manifestations of different cultures today across the continent, but they're all fairly you know, committed to trying to revitalise and maintain their traditional knowledge. Um, some groups have, have more than others, of course, but... That's why the book's important, is to um, hmm. give First Nations people a tool to access into their region. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to cover all regions in Australia. Looks like I'll have to do a volume two to, to achieve that. <laughs> Get well, Paul, it's, it's great to have that ambition and that, and that plan. What was your path to understanding of all these complexities, Paul? How did, how did you... How did you come to this, this, these understandings? Well, it's a long path. It's taken a, over 50 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when we were studying architecture in our, in our um, last year of the course, which was in 1972, we, we got a request from Canberra to visit Mount Isa to investigate a proposal for an Aboriginal cultural centre there. 
by a particular man who'd written to the federal government about it. So Nugget Coombs sent us the airfares and some of the, some of the students went up. We found that the um, person proposing the cultural centre was, in fact, he had a dark skin, but he was, in fact, Indonesian. And when we asked him if he'd consulted the community about his boomerang-shaped building, he said, oh, no, no, I haven't. So <laughs> we said, well, it, it might be best if you do that first before we um, go any further. But when we were there, we went into, we visited a fringe camp, or what was called a fringe camp in those days, now more likely to be called a town camp or a community living area, and couldn't help seeing that there was a spatial layout there. People said, oh, well, that cluster of shelters over there, that's the Bullia mob, and this one over here, that's the Con Curry mob, and there's another shelter on the north side of the camp, and that's the Mornington Island mob, and another one next to them is the Normanton mob. So these people were coming into the regional centre of the regional town and uh, had this particular layout of, of their self-constructed settlement of shacks. And um, a couple of months later, I was offered postgraduate research scholarship and I had to nominate a topic. And I said, use of space by Aboriginal people in northwest Queensland. <laughs> and that was the start of it. And from there, I got into reading Walter Roth's books. He was a, he was a doctor who was... Um, up there at Cloncurry in the 1890s. And he was probably one of the few early ethnographers who wrote about ethno-architecture. And he had drawings of the different types of shelters used on the uh, on those rivers up there, the Leichhardt River and the Diamantina River and the Georgina River. And it built up from there. It also, we were, we were being presented with a political message from Gough Whitland saying he wanted to ha- rehouse Aboriginal people or get housing for Aboriginal people all over Australia within 10 years. And there was a huge backlog, not that there isn't still a backlog, and there was a call for culturally appropriate housing design. And we suddenly realised that these fringe camps were like the laboratories where we could go to see how people uh, organised their behaviours and organised their environments in a way that suited them and that there were lessons to be learnt. I've been documenting those lessons for use by architects in Aboriginal housing over the last 50 years. Because there's that, that breakthrough thought, I guess, that it's not it's not just the structures, it's the spatial and social relationships around and between those structures. These are the important things. Yeah, well, in the introduction, Marcia Langton, who was very kind to me, I might add, with the introduction, she wrote about her profound realisation that in plain sight across the continent, was the evidence of the ingenuity of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander residents in the structures they designed and built because Mm. they were adapting their traditional shelters with the available new materials such as galvanised iron and sawn timber and people didn't realise that their ancient ingenuity was still there in particular ways in in terms of maintaining spatial organisations and domiciliary behavioural patterns and cooking methods and different types of hearths and so forth. So um, there was a lot to be learned. And uh, and from then it was only a matter of searching ethnographic records but also going bush and finding people who were still living that lifestyle. I did my PhD in the end at uh, Mornington Island and I've worked across the continent in many regions and I've spent a lot of time with my what I call my old teachers who I acknowledge in, in the book, elders who had lived 
a traditional lifestyle and who could tell me about their patterns of living on country and building on country. One of my roles now is to is to pass that information back down. The elders of today are saying that Paul was taught that knowledge by the old people and now it's his job to give it back. Hmm. There's a lot of people, a lot of young Indigenous people haven't learnt those things. So that's part of my mission too. And I, I teach at a pre-vocational training school run by the Myuma Group in Western Queensland and teach young Aboriginal adults who are preparing for employment about this, their cultural histories in this way. How do we, and, and I think this is, as you were saying before, and the in the introduction of some of these ideas into the, the training of, of modern architects, how do we construct a better and more appropriate and sustainable architecture in this country? What do we carry forward from ancient practice of architecture in this place? It's acknowledging country is the first thing. I mentioned the nature of sacred sites, like the belief system not only has a profound respect for country, but identity is bound up with country. And identity comes from these dreamings in the sacred site. And as I said, they're distributed all over the continent. And I'm in Brisbane right now, surrounded by these sites, but nobody knows about them. Most people don't know that they existed or still exist. The belief system says they have perpetual energies in them. And there's a call, as I said, through the architectural profession mm. now to recognise this cultural landscape. It can be referenced into buildings. It can, the first, of course, the first exercise is not to damage the environment in a new building project, but to sustain or rehabilitate the environment, to try to work with local Indigenous people to find out what sites are there, what sacred histories are embedded in those sites what sort of things might be permissible to build into the design of the, of the building which can celebrate the landscape, the cultural landscape, or educate the public about the First Nations cultural landscape in the area. And so that's sort of, um, I'm increasingly being asked to do consultancies with architectural firms of that sort. At the moment, I'm working on a, uh, a forensic mental health centre in Melbourne where we're trying to create a culturally safe space for Indigenous prisoners who might who have got mental health problems. So reinforcing their identity and their connection to country becomes very important. I've just done another job recently for the Cross River Rail in Brisbane where we've referenced into the, the four new underground stations where the entrances are. We've referenced landscaping in, which refers to plants and uses that used to occur in the local environments. So by creatively working with group advisory groups of elders and, and um, motivated creative architects, these things can happen. It feels like the desire is there to, to, to tap that knowledge, to make something from it. There's a, there's a great curiosity in, in, in settler Australia as, as well as in Indigenous Australia to, to keep that knowledge and to apply it. Yeah, well, the Institute of Architects now has a First Nations uh, working group, who um, mostly uh, Aboriginal architects or architectural graduates, and they're being very heavily worked trying to build resources for architects, 
to use in doing this sort of thing and prepare professional development training kits and uh, learning kits, learning, learning materials for architects and even doing things like revising national competition standards for, our, for big public projects that require these sorts of things to happen. So we're going to see more and more of that. So um, there's, a, there's a big demand, yeah. Uh, look, thank you so much for, for stepping us through some of those extraordinary thoughts. As, as Bruce Pascoe says, I think, of, of your book, that there is this tremendous richness in, in this continent that, that we need, um, as, as settler Australians in particular, to, to open our eyes to and, and to celebrate. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thank you. Uh, Paul Mehmet uh, and his book, Ganya, Gundi and Worley, The Aboriginal Architecture of Australia, you'll find that in, in shops and libraries. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.